0: You probably know the saying, don't you? Uh, Like father, like son. Uh, Or like mother, like daughter. Now that can be, at times, a a very heartwarming thing, can't it? But at other times it can be slightly terrifying. My boys, uh, you'll know them, uh, they sometimes mock me. uh, Well, sometimes, they do mock me. uh, And they mimic me because apparently when I preach, um, I have a number of mannerisms that are quite like my dad's. Uh, mannerisms when he preaches. He's a preacher, has been for many, many years. You know, kind of like father, like son in that respect. One of my boys is uh, annoyingly fastidious. One might say he has OCD. does that from? (laughs) Um, Sometimes that particularly fills me with joy as I watch him order everything in the right way. Um, And that, uh, heartwarming, it's lovely. At other times, I simply just want to wring his neck. And like father, like son. You'll see this as you compare yourself to your parents, perhaps. And if you have children, you'll see it as you compare yourself to your children as well. But it goes the other way, doesn't it? As the saying is equally true for our failings. The link isn't an inevitable link, but, you know, if your father was a corrupt man, embezzling funds for millions and so on, it's not an inevitable fact that you will do the same. But most agree, it is very likely that... Children are affected by their parents to a degree. It is an excuse. We can't suddenly blame our parents for how we have turned out. However, I don't think it is going too far that, that to say that the flaws in my character, the failures in my discipline, uh, the bad habits of my life, can and will easily appear in my children. And that, for me, is terrifying. Because the thing is, it takes no effort at all, does it? It just happens, like father, like son, uh, and like mother, like daughter. It is a terrifying thought. And, and as we turn to these chapters now, little known chapters in many ways of 2 Samuel, uh, and the resulting chapters that follow this event, particularly in chapter 13, they're possibly alongside last week's chapters, uh, chapter 11 and 12, some of the darkest moments of the whole Bible. But boil this story down to it down to its bare bite, and it really is. Can be summed up in that phrase, like father, like son. I'm going to run through the story uh, of chapter 13 in a moment. Hopefully, it just gives us a kind of a bare bones of understanding of what's going on. But then I'm going to do something slightly different. You'll see it on your outlines. We're going to look, if you like, at, at the story revolving around these four men. And they are four very deficient men. We'll look at them in turn, but just to warn you. Uh, it's not a particularly pretty picture, is it? It's good to remember at times like this. Uh, you know, verses like two Samuel, uh, 2, sorry, two Timothy three sixteen. It reads like this. It says, "All Scripture is God breathed. All Scripture is God breathed." Are we struggling? It's going to die. Nice. Just the last one. Just forget it. Great. Yeah, that's good. Put something in front of it. Forget it. Let me read that verse to you again. 2 Timothy 3.16. You know it well. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I know as we we plough through these large chapters of narrative in the Old Testament, it can be hard work, can't it, sometimes? But we do believe this, that all Scripture... Every verse that we've read today is useful in different ways. So let's go for it. Let's have a look. Chapter 13 then. Let's run through it. As we heard, the story is, it's disgusting. We can't get round that. It is disgusting. But the thing that's really important is to understand, in us understanding this passage, is the relationships, the family relationships between the people. So what I'm going to do is quickly run through a kind of who's who of chapter 13, just so we're clear. Central, I guess, to the story, that's character one, is Amnon. You see him? Uh, He's David's eldest son. He's born of uh, Ahiomen. uh, These names are brilliant, aren't they? Ahinomen of Jezreel. If you want to see where that is sourced, it's back in chapter 3, verse 2, where the sons of David are kind of plotted out. That's Amnon. Then we've got Absalom. Absalom is another of David's sons. He's probably third in line. Kiliab who's mentioned as the second son of, uh, of uh, David in 2 Samuel 3. He's not around. We think he's probably dead. That's what we best assume. So there's Absalom, third son of David. Amnon, Absalom, half-brothers. Same dad, David, different mothers. Okay. Then we get to Tamar. Tamar is Absalom's sister. Most importantly, he, she is Amnon's <laughs> half-sister, Another major character in chapter 13 is Jonadab, okay, who's one of uh, the sons of David's brother. David's brother is called Shimeah, and therefore he is David's nephew, King David's nephew. As described also in verse 3, he's Amnon's friend, confidant, okay? That's the main characters of chapter 13. That's the who's who. Let's get into the story. And I'm going to look at the story really from the the viewpoint of Tamar, the abused, Let's look at that, if we can, very, very quickly. The story itself is written in a way, I think. uh, It's written at what we call chiastically. Everything sort of focuses towards a central point. And that central point is the incestual rape of Tamar. It's very purposely written that way. The point when the deluded love of Amnon turns to an abuse and a hatred... The flow of the story is simple. We're going to run through it from the perspective of Tamar. Firstly, she's beguiled into this seemingly innocent situation of making some bread uh, for her half brother, preparing food. But when she clocks what is going on, look at verse 12, she voices her disgust, doesn't she? What happens? She's totally ignored. She's then raped in verse 14. In verse 15, she is despised. By the end of verse 15, she's banished, locked out. And by by verse 18, she is left to ruin for the rest of her life. I want you to look at the end result of this. It's it's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? She walks into her half-brother's room... In obedience to the king, which you can see in verse 7, she's following David's instruction, she walks in a young and beautiful, the word virgin there is essentially young beautiful, it's not as we would use the term now. She's young, she's beautiful and she's a princess. The, The wearing of an ornate robe shows her status, you see that in verse 18. She walks in like that but by the end of the episode she's got ashes on her head, a symbol of mourning. Uh, she, her robes once a symbol of youth and beauty and status are now ripped essentially a symbol of desolation which is how she's described in verse 20 now the interesting thing is we never hear about Tamar again Well, oh, Absalom has a daughter which she calls Tamar because she's shown beautiful and so on but we never hear about this Tamar again she probably lived out all her years with her brother in his household but we hear nothing why Because in that culture, she is nothing. Everything's been taken. Rape would be bad enough, but remember this is also incest here. Uh, Even Amnon recognises that in verse 11. Look at verse 11. It's, you know, come to bed with me, my sister. There's no doubt, absolutely no doubt that they knew, both of them knew how detestable this was. Uh, Forbidden in God's law, Leviticus 18.9 or Leviticus 20.17, you can see it spelt out there. They knew this, both of them. It's why Tamar pleads with Amnon and calls it literally, look at verse 12, she says the wicked thing, it's godlessness basically. Don't do this wicked thing. She says that if Amnon goes through this, it would be like him being one of the godless wicked fools of Israel, she says in verse 13. And that term, wicked fools, it's interesting uh, that... It is sparingly used within the Old Testament for the most despicable sexual assault violence on the highest kind of level, the most horrible level. And Tamar has nailed it really. She knows exactly what tri- uh, uh, Amnon is trying to do when she pleads with him in verse 13 to consider the consequences. She says, look what it's going to do for both of us. And look what she even pleads with about she suggests let's go and see David, he'll let us get married. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? She's thinking at this stage that marriage to a half brother was better than rape. Well, of course it is, but it's still awful. But of course, Amnon, the wicked fool, ignores the wisdom of Tamar. In verse 14, the foolish and stomach churning events happen. But the funny thing is, things don't really improve, do they? When you get to verse 15, look at that. Arguably, you could say it's even worse. Amnon hated her with an intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had deludedly loved her. Amnon said to her, get up. And get out again. Verse sixteen. Uh, she, uh, he, he won't listen to the wisdom of Tamar. Uh, so by verse seventeen, look at it because it is awful. He simply says, "Get this out." I know in our translation it says, "Get this woman out." That is far too polite. Tamar wants young and beautiful in his eyes. The woman he said that he loved so much that it made him ill. She's now an impersonal piece of rubbish. Get this out. The writer is very skillful here. He wants you to feel disgusted at what Amnon has done. And he wants you to feel a level of sympathy toward Tamar. Essentially we are to absolutely hate what has gone on here. It is perverted and it is disgusting. But that is the really tricky thing about this passage. I know this is difficult, but do you really hate what Amnon did? Recently we were travelling back um, from the north of England, we were coming down the M1. You know, as you come into the M25 and uh, we were on the southern carriageway and things were going fine. It was, it was a nice little drive for me in you know, kind of early evening. On the other side of the road, there was a tailback, and it was probably 15 to 20 miles long. At the front of the tailback was a, a lorry, and it had been pushed into the hard shoulder. It burst into flames. I saw on the news later that the actual driver had died. Uh, smoke inhalation. he couldn't get out quick enough, and he burnt as well. Uh, but the police had done a really good job. They pushed the lorry to the side and, uh, you know, the ambulance was there. But they, they'd open up two lanes of traffic. And, but the problem was they just couldn't get the traffic through. Everyone was just wanting to have a look. There is a subtle pleasure, isn't there, we get from seeing the misery of others. And the same can happen as you read 2 Samuel 13. Now I know this is really hard to hear, but be honest. Are you fascinated by the wickedness of Amnon? Or are you truly disgusted? Do you you hate what has been done to this beautiful young woman? Or is it just intriguing? Now we don't like it to be pointed out, but there is a perversion in all of us. And that is this, listen carefully. We all find it really difficult to genuinely hate sin. But that is what the story of this first half of uh, chapter 13, I think, uncomfortably raises. It's not pretty, is it? But neither are the four men that dominate the rest of the chapter and all of the chapter, really. And so what we're going to do now is have a a bit of a snapshot look at each of... The four characters, are on your outline and hopefully we'll get some wisdom as we look at their, um, their lives, in a sense. They are deficient, by the way, in, in many ways. Every one of them is deficient. Let's look at Amnon quickly, if we can. i put there his lust without love. Of course, he's deluded, isn't he, at the beginning of the chapter. He says he loves uh, Tamar. Frustrated at a point of illness because he couldn't have her. But look at the uh, end of verse 2, if you can, of chapter 13. It says this, she was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. The fact that he even wanted to do anything is the problem. It's not not the fact that he he, he couldn't, it's just the fact that he wanted to. It wasn't love, he just wanted to take He wasn't thinking sacrificially and leading as he ought to have done as a half-brother and a prince within uh, the kingdom. He was being led by his emotions and, of course, other things as well, which I'm not going to spell out. See, love shares a bed with loyal sacrifice. But here we see and we know that lust and hatred are very natural bedfellows, aren't they? Which explains Amnon's response. If you watch films, if you look at music videos, you walk around the city of London, the pubs of Irlesfield, there are many Amnons out there. And perhaps even in here. Ruled by one thing. People of lust without love. That's a good John Adab. uh, Wisdom without integrity. (coughs) Now, in verse 3, Jonathan, look how he's described. He's described as wise there, isn't he? But by that, we assume that the use of the word wisdom there is basically he's a sharp bloke. He's a clever bloke. He's a savvy bloke. He's not wise in the sense of biblical wisdom that we looked at Proverbs last summer. Rather, what Jonadab seems to have is that, in in absolute spade loads, that ability to look at both the big picture and also the details of life. Everything. He knows what to do in every situation. He knows all the possible outcomes. He knows how to make things happen. He looks like the the consummate kind of politician. He knows what to do. Why don't you just flip on to verse 32 to 35 there. Do you remember the panic that followed uh, with the murder of Amnon by Absalom's men? First, the report comes back to David that all the sons are dead. All the king's sons are dead in verse 30 and 31. But there's Jonadab, by David, reassuring him no, only Ammon was dead. He even knew why, verse 32. And we see by verse 34 yes, he's right. He knows what he's clever, he's sharp, he sees the situation, he's wise in that way. But the thing about this passage, I don't know if you clocked it, Jonadab is probably the most dangerous man here uh, in all of this sordid episode. I mean, Amnon, he's dangerous in one area, isn't he? He's got a big weakness in bed with, you know, uh, with Tamar. But Jonadab, you see, is dangerous everywhere. He's wise or he has this great ability and skill, but he has no integrity he has wisdom without any ethics whatsoever. You know, Johnny Doug could walk in here today and he, you know, he'd say, oh yeah, I can see you guys, you know, you need a bigger building. Let me, I'll raise you some money, I'll sort it out for you, no problem. You know, a week later he'd come back. Everything's sorted, everything's done. But you see, he could sort every situation of your life out, but at the same day, within an hour... He could also plan for you to craftily rape a woman. Nothing succeeds like success, as Satan goes. And nothing impedes like standards. The warning, I think, is simple. Integrity and sincerity must never be overlooked, especially when appointing leaders. I was chatting with one of our elders recently. I won't tell you which one, I won't give you any details so you won't be kind of thinking, oh, is it this one or that one or that one? I'm not sure. And simply, I had to listen to him share a very painful decision that he'd humbly asked for advice for earlier on. And he'd made the decision. I knew that it cost him a lot of money. The point was his integrity was intact. And I remember walking away from that, knowing the pain that he was feeling, but also I was utterly thrilled. Utterly thrilled. I think the warning of Jonadab is this. Those with the greatest gifts pose the greatest threat. And then you apply that to the church. Gifts must be wrapped in godliness. Wisdom or skill must have integrity. Integrity. Let's look thirdly at David. Let's see some lessons we can learn there. Anger without justice, we see it. Why don't you turn to verse 21? Look at this. When King David heard all of this, all the reports came back, he was furious, it says. He'd heard how Amnon had manipulated him to begin with. Uh, He'd heard about uh, what Amnon had done to Tamar. and, And he'd heard everything. How she was now desolate. David heard all this. He knew everything. And rightly, rightly so, you read verse 21, you think, he's furious, that's good, he should be furious. And the word furious there suggests that he could hardly contain his rage. But do you see the problem? The problem is he did. He did contain his rage. Oh, for a time he was furious, but then he did nothing. Nothing. His anger should, you see, have led to justice. Remember who David is. He's the man who has the highest position within the judicial system of God's kingdom. He is the top man, the top judge. He has the ability to execute justice. And he knows everything. And he does nothing. Now... You can probably think, oh, looking back to last week, the last two chapters, you can think, oh, he's probably, we can excuse him a little bit. He's, he's probably thinking, oh, I'm unable to exercise any kind of moral judgment because look what I did and so on. But that doesn't excuse him. We may understand David here because do you realise what bringing justice would have meant? It would have meant bringing justice on his son. But again, that doesn't excuse him. <coughs> Sadly, he's just another Eli. Do you remember Eli back in 1 Samuel 2, who essentially put his fatherly love above the justice and the righteousness of God through his word? We've got another Eli on on our hands. We must not shirk responsibility for justice. It's not very popular that in a liberal culture, is it? We should be rightly angered at injustice. And when we have the ability to exercise justice, to, to speak up for justice, we should be there. We must not avoid it. Whether that's in the home, disciplining your children, whether that's in the workplace, standing up for a colleague or something if that's necessary, doing it in a right and appropriate way within the laws of your company and all those right things. We shouldn't be silent. In church, in society, everywhere, David did nothing. And Amnon remained an unpunished rapist. And Tamar languished as a desolate woman for the rest of her life. And because of that, because of that, Absalom became who he was. A seething vigilante. Let's look at Absalom lastly. Anger without restraint, I think we see here. And you can understand it, can't you? His sister... He's been raped by his half-brother. You understand his anger. He's every right to be angry, hasn't he? But I think Absalom's uh, anger is the kind of anger that all of you guys will probably see in the workplace all the time. He is that typical passive-aggressive. One commentator put it like, he's got a high-class anger, this man. His public face was cool, was calm, but underneath lay a cauldron of hatred. He was also very patient, wasn't he, in his anger. Two years, plotting, seething. What am I going to do? How can I get this man? I'm not. How can I sort him out? And he waited for the moment that he could configure that to enact, as I call it, the sheep-shearing revenge plot. Um, it's hardly where you expect the murder to go down, is it really? little Yulan, it's just not there. But, but Absalom, he's boiling over, he knows what he's going to do, and the plot is set, he's going to get his revenge. Now oh, he takes some persuading of David. He, he knows what's going on there. He kind of invites everyone, David and all his kind of attendants, knowing that they're not going to come, but hopefully he'll concede by just letting the brothers come along. And that's what happens. He's clever. In the end, Amnon goes to the sheep-shearing fest. Happy hour comes. The cocktails are flowing. Amnon gets drunk. Absalom and his men do exactly as they plotted. Verse 28. And by verse 29, job is done, and the brothers flee back to their dad. And so, what do we think about Absalom? Is Absalom a kind of a man in a league of his own? A man so unfettered in his anger that that we can dismiss him as one of those kind of crazy kind of exceptions that we're never like that. We don't see that anymore. That's not the kind of people that we hang around with. No. I don't think Absalom is the rare exception. I think he's the universal rule. Whether or not we would do the same thing in the same circumstances is not the point. Absalom is a norm for humanity. Because without Christ, without the generosity of God, our Savior, we share in Absalom's nature. And we are equally capable of such high class hatred. These are four uh, small snapshots. Together they paint a very awful portrait, don't they? God's kingdom and his rule in the kingdom seems in absolute tatters. Did you notice God is not even mentioned in that chapter at all? Did you spot that? Not once. Like Father King David, like sons Absalom and Amnon. And you kind of go, where is God in all of this? Crazy mess. (coughs) Remember he promised back in chapter 7 of this book, uh, what did he promise? That the house of David would establish God's kingdom rule in the land. And David had wonderfully, eight chapters 8, 9, and 10, been a, a great king, a great victory of calmness, lots of blessing and, and, and so on. But in David's arrogance and his ignoring of God's loving words, the nation had begun to fall and crumble. And as a result, we saw last week in chapter 12, verse 10, that judgment that came through the prophet Nathan. And he said, the sword will never depart from his house, David's house. Oh, you see, God may not be mentioned in this chapter at all. But you see, he's fulfilling everything that he's promised to David. God hasn't gone on holiday when you get to chapter 13. Rather, he's quietly bringing his word to pass. God's promise in chapter 7 of his kingdom rule being established in the house of David seems, well, at this stage, utterly impossible, doesn't it? But one would come in David's line. And unlike Amnon, he was always love. Unlike Jonadab, he had complete integrity. Unlike David, he brought justice, but with complete righteousness. Righteousness. And like Absalom, his anger was always right. I hope you know him. His name is Jesus, and he's established God's good eternal kingdom. And he calls you and I today to trust him, to follow him today, so that you can be with him forever. We're going to look at chapter 14 much more briefly now. But the story continues, and I'm afraid it doesn't get much lighter. Um, the plots and the schemes just thicken, really, as they will do for the following chapters. Chapter 14 really is, as I put on your outline, two scheming plans of manipulative men. It's a great little title that isn't it? Firstly, we see the plots and the schemes of, of Joab. He's come back into the story. He'll be throughout. He's scheming to bring Absalom back. This is really the first half of the chapter. Joab is kind of the same old Joab. I can't really go into that, but we've seen him before. We'll see him again. He's a pretty... Nasty chap. Uh, his scheme, scheming is uh, on show as he employs this wise woman from Tekoa. Tokoa is just 10 miles south of Jerusalem. Uh, let's not dive into the story too much, but, but note that her own plotting and manipulation is very much equal to Joab's in many ways. But together, you see, they plot an injustice, but with the guise of justice, motivated by their own greed. And the woman wants pardon for her undeserving, very violent son who had killed one of their other sons. Joab wants to favour with the king. He wants to be one in close proximity. The funny thing about the beginning of chapter 14, at first glance, it seems very clever, doesn't it? Joab seems clever. The woman from Tekoa seems really clever. They're all just brutally clever, wise, bright, sharp people. They know what to do. Wisdom is everywhere, it seems, in the chapter, but really it's nowhere. Joab is scheming for his own profit and career. The woman is persuaded for her own gain. Oh, even David, he seems really sharp, doesn't he? Uh, if you look down at verse 19, he's the one who looks at the woman to cover and says, oh, I know, you, you, Joab's behind all this, isn't he? Perhaps his downfall with Bathsheba is playing on his mind because he again fails to act. Did you spot that? He could have said, you know, uh, of Absalom, uh, you know, he's got to be banished forever. David could have said, "Like that would be the right thing, let's keep him out, he's done this terrible thing, let's banish him forever. Or he could have said, bring him back and let's enact justice. That's it, we have to kill him for his brother Amnon. That would have been right, that would have been in the law. But one commentator put it this way, I think it's very helpful. He said, instead David no longer acts, he is acted upon. He reacts rather than rules. He does not reign, he just simply lets things go. Look at verse 21, it's... Sad, isn't it? The king said to Joab, Very well, I will do it. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. Not my son, just the young man. David appears decisive in verse 24. Yeah, he, Absalom, must go to his house. He must not see my face. But by verse 33, he's just given up. So Joab went to the king and told him this, then the king summoned Absalom. And he came and he bowed down with his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Nothing. It's not ruling. I think the warning must be we can appear very, very clever. We can appear so skillful, so at ease making plans and persuading people we're savvy. All the signs of wisdom can be there. But in reality, we can be utterly devoid of true, godly, biblical wisdom. Be careful. What can we learn from the scheming plan, secondly, of Absalom, the receiving royal favour? You know, if, if there were an award, a biblical award, any award for comeback king, Absalom would be the man, wouldn't he? I mean, what an amazing comeback. All those years banished, and now there he is, back. He takes his calculated risk providing King David with an ultimatum. And essentially he says there, either receive me or kill me. Go on. There's you. Which way are you going to go, David? And the risk paid off. A little grovelling later by verse 33. It's all over. And now Absalom is exactly where he wants to be. He's in the palace where he can begin to make a play for the throne, which is exactly what he does in the following chapters. I wish I could spend more time on this. You realise we're going to have to move on. But I I want you... I found this... There was even a snigger amongst you when we heard it read out. Um, Look at verse 25 to 27. Why are they in the text? Why are they there? It's a bit weird, isn't it? Suddenly, with all the manipulation, all the plotting, we've got this extended break in the story to see how handsome... Absalom is and how virile he was as a man. Look at verse 25. In all of Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. And the hair in verse 26. I'm really, I'm not jealous, honestly. (laughs) Some of you remember similar things were said about Saul. Do you remember that back in 1 Samuel? He was equally impressive. It isn't that being attractive and impressive is a disqualification for leadership. But in a world obsessed by appearance and media appeal, there is a warning here I think we must not ignore. Outward appearance, impressiveness in a culture without internal submission to God makes for a leadership catastrophe. Absalom is a handsome man, great hair, beautiful family. But did you notice in that description of him there's no mention of his godly character at all? We must be really careful that we expect more. We need substance over style. We need content over cosmetics. We need matter over manner. And I'm not going to mention Donald Trump. Do you remember Jesus' words to his power-hungry disciples in Mark 10, verse 43? He said this, It's not to be like that with you. Or among you. It's not to be like that. From this point on, Absalom will take over the whole narrative of 2 Samuel. Just as he will take over the kingdom. Let me conclude with this. I understand that today we need to dig deep. It's hard, isn't it, as you hear these stories. This story is revolting. And so please hear the warnings. But remember with joy that one has come in the line of David as promised, and he was not deficient in any way. But his once for all sacrifice for our sin was completely sufficient for every single one of us if we trust him. So we go today trusting Jesus. Because as he says in 2 Samuel, oh, uh, sorry, as it is written in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, he says this, Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace, the undeserved kindness of God, is sufficient. We are deficient, but he is sufficient. For my power is made perfect in weakness, and therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, my deficiencies, so that Christ's power and sufficiency might rest on you. Let's pray. Lord God, these are sobering warnings. Please give us hearts and minds to hear them. And please in our lives, may we do everything we can to honour you, to be obedient to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.